Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk to Aisha and we're going to talk about diversity and inclusion because Aisha is a director for corporate partnerships at Headspring in London, UK. So I'd like to find out more about what her corporate clients do in that respect, whether they pay lip service to the topic or whether they are really engaging. How can that also translate to the bottom line, whether you are a financial institution or any other business as well? or fintech, of course. So welcome, Aisha. How are you today? I'm all right. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Please explain how did you get to do what you do today? Because I don't think that you could have studied it in college or university, right? (laughs) That's a very good question, actually. It's been quite dynamic for me because my career hasn't exactly been linear and it never followed a pattern. So I go for roles where I think I can make a difference. Um, March last year, I joined the commercial partnership team at Headspring after having spent almost four years in executive education. And I worked for Oxford Said Business School, actually. But met, not many people know this, but I actually hold a degree in history. And my first job was in sales, probably like many graduates. And funny enough, I used to sell credit cards and I was good at it. But my career took off. F- fake ones, sorry. Or the no, no, real, real ones. ones, real ones. But my career really took off when I worked for a tech startup in Paris. So I have a startup background uh, and I did that for many years. And then I moved to the Middle East because you're young, you're bold, <laughs> you're not scared of failure. I went off and I worked on some crazy projects there. With some of those skills in the back, decided to move to the UK and try my luck here. And I ended up in executive education pretty much by chance. So you see, it's not exactly as it's supposed to be. Social science background is quite helpful in leadership development because you have to be quite observant and analytical. And I have always been quite fascinated as how leaders are shaping their companies, how they can make or break an organization by the way they behave, by the way they lead. Because as you probably know today, it's not so much down to the technical skills. You can be a a brilliant engineer and have this incredible idea, but then executing that and making that idea grow, making your people feel inspired and engaged, that's a totally different game, right? So yeah, so going back to executive education and leadership development, I thought I can make a real difference here, but the shift for me or the The biggest impact that it had on me personally to be more vocal and more involved and engaged in DNI was when I had my daughter because I thought, oh gosh, the world is really unfair. It wasn't fair before, but I could sense that it was even more unfair. So I decided that it was time for me to really engage myself more with my clients because clients can shape our society. I mean, companies can shape society overall. And that starts with our leaders. 
Right. So we mentioned Headspring. Can you please explain what is that? What is your mission? And I know that you are partnering up with Financial Times as well. So how does that work when it comes to finance world? And you mentioned DNI, so diversity inclusion. How does that actually work in a tangible way? Okay. Yeah. So Headspring is a disruptor in executive education. I think we all love this word, except for Lord Sugar, for those who watch The Season's Apprentice. <laughs> But more seriously, we are a joint venture between the Financial Times, as you mentioned, and another business school called IE. The disruption comes from the way we co-design, we curate, and we deliver leadership development programs. And they're meant to address today and tomorrow's business challenges. So we work globally. I'm personally based at the FT in headquarters in London. But this partnership is quite unique because it brings media giant like the FT and the entrepreneurial side of a business called E, but that's the DNA, this DNA that is quite incredible when we work with our clients because we're able to bring journalistic acumen and academic rigor together. And our journey with our clients begins with discovery of your needs. We try to understand your corporate culture. What are your key objectives as a company? And then we question, we challenge, and we try to create a program that will transform your people so that you reach your goals. So today we talk a lot about thought leadership, but what does thought leadership look like in real life? What sort of applicable skills could you learn and to drive transformation for your organization? So often we bring in RFT journalists to work with our clients in a very unique way. They bring perspective on events that shape the world of business But they also bring this approach that shapes the way we work with our clients. They're quite inquisitive journalists. They're close to the source. They know the breakthroughs before they become trends. And they understand the small details of policy that can make or break a business. Um, and that has a lot of added value for clients. So when we implement a program, we really look at how behaviors can change so that your leaders, your manager, your people can you can tap into their full you can get the their the full potential so that they in return can help your company succeed so can you give us some examples of the projects that you've been working on in the past 12 months or so are you focusing on the incumbents in other words when we look at financial services big banks or insurers or fintechs or what is your focus when it comes to clients and type of work sure So obviously, with the Financial Times, we work a lot with organization within the finance sector, fintech, but also banks and banks that also are operating in this area. But generally speaking, I think the past even couple of years, I'd say, has been really interesting because when the pandemic hit, there was this huge shift to online learning and a great desire from our clients to address uncertainty, which we're still having to, to, to overcome. Then as we move to flexible mode of working, our clients were faced with this reality that a future of work is already here. We thought that it was something distant, but it wasn't. And then the macroeconomic backdrop, the war in Ukraine, the loss of trust amongst people, the great res resignation, the wake of DNI, all of these things have accelerated the need for a more humane and purposeful leadership. So many of our clients have started, particularly in the finance sector, have started to prioritize this aspect. And they wanted to ensure that their leaders were prepared to tackle these issues. So we delivered several programs around 
purpose for leadership, sustainability. Sustainability has been a big thing and it continues to be with new regulations in place. But also this idea of equipping people with the right understanding on how to lead through challenging times. And there's been also a specific kind of focus on top talents and mid-management and growth. As a great resignation hit, there was a huge movement of top talents and a recruitment drive. So people, especially leaders in organizations, started to try to address that. And so some of our clients are, for example, Santander, BBVA, Société Générale and others. And actually, here's a fun fact about how well, some of the things that we've done. Recently, we did a top talent program for a very large organization, and the, those leaders had sessions with Dan Macrom, the FT journalist behind the scandal Netflix documentary who exposed wirecast fraud. And it was incredibly well received. It changed their perspectives and so many things. They were able to learn valuable lessons from this investigation and how the wirecard just crashed. Right. So you mentioned leadership programs a lot and executive education on leadership, etc. But let's play a little bit of a devil's advocate here. Can you teach leadership or does one have to be born as a natural leader? There are some people who have all kinds of trainings and certificates, but still you maybe not would want them to be your boss, right? So can this be corrected and taught in some way or learned or not? I would say what is a natural born leader exactly? And is there such a thing then as a natural born follower? <laughs> because it, the question implies that there is some sort of emotional or cognitive predisposition to being a leader. I think we've come, we've become accustomed to this myth that leaders are born, they're polished, they're not made. But I completely disagree with that. I think anyone can be a leader if they want to. And being a good leader is something that you learn to do. No one is born with this self-awareness, with the understanding, the skills and capabilities to lead. It comes with education. It comes with experiences, with connecting with people. Absolutely, leadership can be taught and it is taught and we teach it, but it's how you do it that is that really makes the difference. All of us have inner abilities in yourself, Rudy, and sometimes those need to be perhaps slightly recalibrated or nurtured. For example, we associate certain traits of leadership, such as effective communication, resilience, or decision-making, but those can be taught. So there's certain aspects of leadership that might come naturally to some because of our personality types. You know, if I'm an extrovert, then I might find networking as something quite easy to do, but that doesn't mean that I cannot learn to do it. Self-awareness is like, taught through coaching, for example, is something that you can learn. So yeah, to answer your question, absolutely. You're not born a leader, but you come to learn how to do it, how to be one, and it's about how you do it right. Of course, look, I agree with that because if you just look back, I don't remember my day one on, on this planet, but I guess I didn't know anything about what I do today. And so you had to learn that. But maybe a side question, because we talked about diversity inclusion, and that also is related to discussion on biases. And I come across a quite an interesting research a while ago that relates to Fortune 500 CEOs in the US. And of course, you could obviously talk about gender inequality when you look at that group, look at the races and nationalities in terms of also foreigners, etc. Do they run American companies or not? I think this obviously has been an issue and it's documented quite well. But there is one interesting fact that is overlooked is that most of these CEOs are 
six feet and taller, maybe 85% of those, but in the population, it's only 15%. So why is that? Are the tall people born to be leaders or what? No, I think uh, it's, it's got nothing to do with them being born to be leaders because of their height. I think you've, we've got to remember, and especially if you put the lens of diversity, equity and inclusion, you need to understand that not everyone is born with the same opportunities, the same background. We're all coming from different circumstances, cultures, upbringing, etc. So, you know, your trajectory and perhaps, I don't know, maybe those people have had common themes that have run through their lives where they're able to access certain opportunities that put them in those positions. But the truth is, most of us, most of us do not have those fair opportunities. We're not treated fairly equally to be able to rise at the top. And if we did, you'd probably see a lot more shorter people, shorter women, <laughs> for example, at the top. Yeah, absolutely. So looking back to your examples, though, there are concrete examples that you mentioned before. You mentioned Societe Generale and Vivier, etc. But you also work with fintechs and FT covers them a lot, right? Especially the ones that are B2C or they are unicorns. So what would be the most critical advice for leaders that are lead growing businesses they turn from being a startup to a scale up or to be a unicorn it's going to sound quite simple but it's don't forget to be a good leader uh it's quite sad to hear stories for example whether they're in the newspaper or you can just take a quick look at glassdoor and read these stories about toxic cultures and startups and especially fintech is just not doing great and as a leader just because you're the founder or you're the chief doesn't mean that you you won't be overwhelmed by growth. So I would say invest in your leadership development. It's hard, I know. You have the pressure from your shareholders, your teams and customers, etc. But if you neglect developing yourself, it will have an impact on your growth. It will. It can seem like a nice thing to have right now. You are perhaps focused on launching your business and scaling up, but you can't do that without your people. So take care of them. Ensure that they are working in the best possible environment and ecosystem because they won't perform otherwise and they will leave you. And in the end, you, your company could fail. I think one of the main reasons why most startups are failing is because they are not actually inclusive, diverse, representative representative of the customer's needs. They create these products that are not adequate fit for people and then they crumble. But if you are a leader or you're a founder of a startup and especially of a, of a fintech company, you need to really pay attention and educate yourself and continue to learn and nurture your ability to lead effectively and purposefully and inclusively. So I think the key message is carve out some time, set time aside for personal development. If you haven't gone through that situation before, so develop yourself as a leader and focus on your people. When it comes to diversity, I completely see that, right? I think if you have three co-founders that are exactly the same, maybe that's not helpful because you are building a product for other people. So it's good if they are right next to you. But Moving on, looking at the outlook of this year, we said a year ago, this is going to be a tough year, now <laughs> even more. So how would you recommend people to prepare for managing 
a company or leading a business in a downturn because also when you talk about startups, maybe they don't have a history where they have seen the financial crisis of 2008 or so, or dot-com burst in the early noughties. So what would be the key messages that you would like to share here when it comes to managing a business in a downturn? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, downturns will come and go. And like you said, and you rightly pointed out that many of these founders or these startups haven't experienced that yet. And what we see is it's all in the mindset, really. You have to prepare yourself, embrace disruption because disruption, crisis can actually present opportunities. It's not all grim and negative in the end. But again, going back to leadership, because it is important to emphasize on that, having a good leadership from top is extremely important to be able to create to create a sense of psychological safety for people to raise their concerns to be able to engage share their perspectives this leads to better decision making more agility more flexibility so that you can tackle those problems more effectively and you have to do that in a collaborative way so again i'll go back to good leadership you have to have the right mindset to not be threatened by crisis, but learn to overcome it as a, an opportunity for growth. Absolutely. So coming back to one of the points we were already touching on, which is that it seems like, and of course you are the believer that diversity and inclusion is good for business, but let's break it down into numbers and some research, right? Can you explain to listeners why is it good for business if there is a better balanced, let's say, leadership in a company or the entire workforce in the company when it comes to gender, nationality, race, etc.? How does that actually help the business? Or is this an extension of uh, the debate in the society? But uh, which one is it or is it both? Okay, yeah. So I'll be honest. <laughs> By this time, 2023, I would hope that we all understood why diversity is so important, especially in this industry. But I can understand that it's still not the case. So I'll start by perhaps sharing a little bit of data here. To give you a bit more context, the UK fintech sector has a higher proportion of ethnic diversity compared to the tech sector as a whole. But it's far from perfect and actually far enough to continue to, to exclude underrepresented communities from using its products and services. So for instance, if I just gave you some data, Tech Nation says that the majority of people working in UK fintech are actually white males. There's like something like 55% of them. And it's without a surprise that there is even a higher gender gap in fintech usage compared to the other financial services. So how can companies understand the customers' needs if they don't embrace DNI, fintechs who actually reflect their customer base have a competitive advantage when they align their offerings to their audience needs. So organizations who fail to see the gaps, they're missing out hugely on financial opportunities. And perceptions of those that are working in this field are not completely in sync with reality. I think there was a survey conducted by EY and Innovate Finance that showed that 70% of male leaders believe the fintech sector to be inclusive compared to just 25% of female leaders. That's a huge difference. So if we are failing to recognize this, it's impossible to address it. But if I was to say, okay, let's list down some key benefits that DNI has, 
Although we don't think that, we like to believe that money isn't everything. It'd be naive to think that it isn't a great motivator. Obviously, if you are founder of a startup, you're here to make money. So to that point, I would argue that profitability could be the greatest impact that your that DNI could have more holistically on your company. As a leader, you need to understand the importance of it. And you'll be missing out on innovation, growth, and ultimately on financial gain. So what you can expect when you have DNI embedded in your working culture is higher performance with enhanced innovation, creativity, team collaboration, better decision making, agility and flexibility, better corporate reputation, which is really important. Whether it, you are at the early stages or beyond, or we scaling up, talent, retention and attraction, improved people's well-being and attractiveness for funding. I'll just give you one more example here to illustrate that. So there's a great article that the Financial Times wrote about the story of Starling Bank, founded by Anne Bowden in 2014. And she wanted to transform as banking to make it more inclusive, fairer, etc., and her vision has come to reality, now owning 8.9% share of the UK SME banking market, being awarded best customer service. And that's because she plays DNI at its core and, and now she's profitable. So she's doing really well. That's proving that if you put it at the heart of your strategy, of your organization, you will succeed. You will grow. You will make money and ultimately achieve your vision. Absolutely. So I hear you. There are multiple benefits. You can look at it as a matrix or more than a 3D kind of matrix, right? Of course. But if we were to zoom in on maybe one of the dimensions like product development, because I know you're involved in that, can you explain some examples where this taking into account diversity and inclusion would lead to a superior product offering? In other words, if I'm going to create an online bank what do I need to change or keep in mind so this also works for women or for other ethnicities rather than just white males who came out of the tech university or something like that? So I'll actually give you a personal example because I worked for a tech startup that was designing an app that had money remittance services as well as it was like a holistic app with instant messaging, shopping and money remittance services. And there were no women in the room in the product development. I wasn't even in the room because I was working in a different side of the business. So by the time they finalized, let's say the first version of the app, and they came to me and they said, Aisha, I think we're ready for you to go out there and find us some partners. I thought, this is, I can't take that to any of my clients because who can use this? You've created this product for you, <laughs> not for me. <laughs> it was completely inadequate. It was inadequate for so many reasons. All of the engineers that were working on this app, first of all, they were mostly, they were actually mostly local guys. They were from various backgrounds, but they were local guys straight out of uni. They didn't have a practical life experience. There were no women there. There was nobody that had any sort of different background that was represented there. So they were bouncing ideas off each other and their ideas were the same. So in the end, the product had to be completely redesigned and retested. And we had to bring in other perspectives in the room, other people from different backgrounds and lived experiences so that we could create a product that would appeal to a wider because we didn't include them in the first place in the room. So I think for me, this is the best example. Look at your room right now and think about whether 
it's representing the people that you want as your customers. Are there needs in the room already? Or is it one need? <laughs> because it's very homogeneous. So yeah, I really think it's important for people to consider this aspect. You're working on, especially specifically thinking about tech and financial services. So there was a, some statistics that said that by 2030, I think, or 2050, I can't remember, 60% of the wealth in the UK will be owned by women. And if your products right now are not even including this category, you are losing out big time. Right, because how can you then include them in your targeted addressable market? And then you will discover soon enough that you don't have a product market fit, right? Because you actually are sorting out a problem for yourself, which could be great. But is it worth solving for investors, right? Related to this, is there any further reading that you could recommend, whether that's a business book or it's another resource? Some people follow TEDx Talks or some Twitter accounts of some people that they admire. What could you recommend as further reading on these topics that we just discussed? Sure. Actually, I'm a huge fan and it's a bit of a shout out actually to, to Isabel Berwick. She is an FT journalist. She has an incredible podcast as well. It's called Working It. It's about the future of work. It addresses a lot of these issues that we mentioned and it's not specific to any industry, but I find this podcast quite short but brilliant gives you lots of ideas about how work is shifting but if I had to recommend a book and I'm not a huge business book reader I would really suggest The Art of Gathering by Priya Parker so this book recommends to people a way it helps you understand how why we're meeting and how gathering shapes the way we think and how we can become more conscious about it for me it really transformed me because if you are, for example, a founder, you're meeting people all the time, but can you do it in a more meaningful way? So I'd highly recommend this. All right. Great stuff. Thank you for the tip. And my last question would be, what's the best way to reach out and find out more about Headspring? Sure. For me, you can find me on LinkedIn. And for us, you can find us also on LinkedIn if you look for Headspring Executive. We also have a website, headspringexecutive.com. I have a hope, an open door policy, so you can reach out to me anytime if you want to explore how learning can help your startup accelerate its growth, or if you just want to exchange ideas and perspectives. Fantastic. Thank you so much and good luck to you, Aisha and Headspring. Thank you so much, Rudy. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.